Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard. Another massive privilege uh, this month talking to Tim Stuffle, um, the original lead singer and bassist with uh, pre-Queen trio, Smile, alongside Brian May and Roger Taylor, of course. He's also continued to make music ever since and has a new album out, Too Late, which we'll be talking about a bit later. The song you've just heard is uh, Smile, Doing All Right, Revisited, from the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody original soundtrack. Welcome, Tim. Hello there. Hi, Jason. In terms of the Queen story and obviously the, the biopic, yeah. your role in that is pivotal, really, in terms of leaving Smile and then Freddie coming in as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing, well, 
I use the word interesting, but um, it depends who you are. I knew nothing about the proposal to feature that part of the story until earlier this year mm. when Brian called me and explained and asked me if I'd like to go down and uh, and do the voiceover on the on the track. The reason, as I understand, is that mm. is that the backing track that they started to use, which they then had Jack Ross singing over, derived from the Queen one from their first album. The song was doing all right, of course. And uh, but of course, what they needed, what they actually needed, was something that sounded more like the original Smile. So they were after recreating the relative crudity, I think, of hmm. of the 1969 recording. And who and who could be cruder than me? <laughs> so uh, so they they called me in, and and I mean, it, it, when I say crude, what I mean to say is authentic. Really, hmm. the challenge was to make that sound using modern technology to make that sound as if it was a 1969 piece of music. And I think it worked pretty well. I overdubbed the bass too. Mm. And I think generally speaking, it was, it, it, it was a successful um, effort. That, that was a song that you um, co-wrote with Brian May, of course. That's correct. That is correct. I mean, there have been a number of versions of it. Um, there was obviously that original version. There's the bow rap version. Mm. Queen have recorded it several times. Uh, it, it was featured in the BBC um, sessions that was released about a year ago, I think. And of course, I recorded it in a altogether different guise in my um, 2003 album, Amigo. And that was with Brian as well, wasn't it? The, your, your own version. It was, in fact, with Brian, but we, we, we treated it then like a country tune. Um, I, I, I guess you'd have to ask the fans how how they feel about that. I thought it was a fairly successful uh, foray into um, into a different genre. Mm. And this show largely takes a chronological look at, at your career, and obviously the story of Queen is weaved in, in and out at, at, at certain points. Of course. I kind of want to take you right back to the start. Um, understand you, you originally met Brian May at, at school? Yeah, we were both at Hampton School, there were two school bands, basically. There was a band uh, called The Others, and then there was Us, 1984. Mm. And uh, I think there were other little little outfits, but 1984 and The Others were working bands, w- working schoolboy bands, as it were. Um, and we kind of fed off each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, friendly competition. I think was the order of the day there. But 1984, myself and Brian and uh, two other Hampton boys, there was Dave Dilloway, sadly no longer with us, and John Garnham were were part of the band. And we used to work regularly on a Saturday night. We had a we had a resi- almost a residency at the Thames Boat Club um, in Putney. The Vesta Rowing Club in Putney, not the Thames Boat Club, the Vesta Rowing Club. Yep. <laughs> and which was, I guess, you know, I guess there was a certain amount of kudos in that. I mean, working, 
working what in the at weekends playing music and then being a humble schoolboy for the rest of the week. Mm. I've heard some sort of, um, I don't know if it's live or demos from 1984, but there's kind of a lot of covers of Cream, Soul, yeah. soul Tunes, etc. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we were a covers band, but except, of course, we did, we were beginning to write. Right. And Step On Me and Doing All Right. Actually, Doing All Right doesn't come from that era. Doing All Right is a exclusively a smile song. I think... I could be contradicted in that. Mm. My memory isn't perfect. Mm. But I believe Step On Me was a 1984 song and Doing All Right was more strictly a smile tune. Yeah. And Step On Me was kind of... It almost acts as a, as a bridge between 1984 and Smile, which is where... Was it that you advertised for Roger? Yes, we... we adver- when we left... When we both left school... Brian went to Imperial College, and I went to Ealing Art School. Right. And but we were, but Brian and I were always friends at, at school. I mean, it, beyond beyond musical associates, we were friends as well. And mm. once we had left school, we stayed in touch uh, because I think we had plans to um, create Smile even in the closing days of 1984. And so we advertised. Brian put a, an advert, I think, on the notice board at Imperial College Students' Union. And anyway, it attracted Roger's response. And we tried Roger out in a flat in Edison Gardens, was it, I think, maybe? And we were blown away. Hmm. Flamboyant Roger. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Was he just as powerful kind of on the drums then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Did he sing in that period? Yes, yeah. That was the great thing about Smile. We um, we were a singing trio, an all-singing, all-playing trio, and quite a heavy rock one at that, which was rather unusual. Mm. I mean, with Cream, Eric and Jack sang. I don't think Ginger Baker mm. did. I could be wrong, but I don't think he did. But the harmonies were an important part of the um, the generation of Smile. I think your first gig was supporting uh, Pink Floyd at Imperial College, wasn't it? Well, I think it was. I tell that tale, don't I? I hmm. I've got this memory that I think it was it was a, a Chelsea Art School gig, and I think it was Floyd's first proper gig, and it must have been in the Sid Barrett years. It couldn't have been in the David Gilmore years. And we thought, they, of course, they were using oil slides and goodness knows what. And we, we were, we thought, what's this all about? <laughs> but uh, yeah, was it the following year that you got some sort of limited deal with Mercury Records? I guess it would have been. Uh, I think the thing is about Smile is that it didn't last that long. I, I mean, I, I think within eighteen months to two years, it was gone. Yeah. But anyway, in that time, we um, came to the, the attention of Lou Reisner, who was um, a producer in London from Mercury America. I'm, I'm thinking I, 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 have to, I, should, I should make some kind of disclaimer regarding my memory. M- most of what I'm about to tell you is accurate as far as I'm aware. It could be countered by someone who knows better, but I'm pretty sure yeah. of what I say 
but there's always the chance that my memory may be failing. So we, yes, we, we signed up with Mercury America to do uh, just a single, I think. And, and I'm not quite sure how the album came about, but we recorded earth and step on me, uh, which I understand was released as a single in the States, but not here. And as far as I'm aware, if you can get hold of a copy of a seven-inch single of of Earth, you know, you've got a rather valuable little item there. Mm-hmm. Step on me, was that just Brian, or were you kind of involved in the writing of that? Well, I think I'm. I think I'm co-credited with co-writing that. Yeah. You see, Earth was the first tune I wrote. I'd written on my own. I think both doing all right and step on me my main job was the lyrics uh, I, that is that isn't to say that i didn't contribute some of the melodic structure but i think by and large my role was hmm. to create the lyrics well let's uh let's play step on me first and then uh we'll, we'll kind of cover earth in more detail if that works of course Step on me, step on me, step on me. 
Fantastic. That was uh, Step on Step on Me by Smile. And now we move to Earth, as we were kind of trailering earlier. Am I right that in terms of the lyrical element of that, that's kind of got more of a, a, a sort of science fiction edge? Was that something that was always of interest to you, Tim? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've always been a science fiction buff. I, st- I can't, even now, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I still read SF in preference to anything else. Uh, and it, even when I was 14, I had a thousand paperbacks, science fiction paperbacks, and I used to just mm. absolutely consume the stuff. And um, yeah, and, uh, it was quite—it was logical that the first songs I wrote would have SF lyrics because that was my head. My head was full of it. Mm. Obviously, it's a slightly different thing in terms of Brian's kind of astronomy that he was studying at the time but was he into science fiction or was it mainly you kind of into that genre at the time well i think brian and i both enjoyed the classic sci-fi i mean wells and and jules verne and and stuff um uh, but i think and probably arthur c Clarke and some of the maybe the gold what you'd call the golden age writers like isaac asimov Uh, but i was the one who was indiscriminate I used to read anything. I, I became, I could have done Mastermind uh, with the specialist subject mm. being science fiction writers from the 30s and 40s, I think. But, um, uh, and, but Brian wasn't quite so uh, besotted with it as I was. Mm-hmm. And did, did you know much about the, the release of Earth at the time over in the US or is that just something that you heard well, in, in hindsight? It was a, it was a bit of a confusing time administratively for Smile in those days. It was our first introduction to the way the industry deals with its artists. And I'm not sure that I personally was fully aware of what was going on behind the scenes. I mean, maybe, maybe Brian and Roger were more so than me, but I, I, I was sort of happy to just continue playing and let the suits deal with the nuts and bolts of marketing and releasing things. I, I don't quite know what happened with with Earth. I, I think it just wasn't promoted enough. Mm. And we didn't really have a, an effective management structure, so we weren't really capable mm. of doing tours, su- supporting our recordings. Mm. Now, of course, that would be that would be a terminal thing for a band not to be able to do that. In those days, it, it wasn't so crucial because records used to make money. You did um, uh, appear at a show at the Royal Albert, Royal Albert Hall in early '69. Yeah, that's right. We did. Um, it was it was a charity concert for the Council for Unmarried Mothers, I believe. With who was on it? Bonzo Dog Free. No. Oh, it, it's detailed somewhere. Uh, I can't re- quite recall who yeah. was the who were the rest of the acts were, but yeah, it was it was a pretty illustrious lineup, and uh, I think we were yeah. it, because it, it was it was handled by Imperial College, and and we were we did slightly have a a tame booking agent in in the union at, uh, at Imperial. Table and 
suddenly I'll catch a fleeting vision of her crystal seas. Or I might be standing in a crowded dockyard far away, underneath the sun I've never seen. Cause I And the code of space seeps in So then, um, later on that year, you were you were back in uh, in, in the studio with uh, Fritz Fritz Fryer, who used to be in the That's Four right. Pennies, um, kind of doing some more more recordings. Uh, one of the more notable tracks there is "April Lady," which I think was brought a song brought in by Mercury. 
Yeah, it was an um, interesting, um, interesting song. Uh, it was um, it's in five four time, uh, which I think we, we we thought that would um, that would indicate that we were we were quite sharp if we could handle a song in five four, hmm. uh, because those those jazzy time sequences are not not common in the rock idiom. I mean, I can only think of. Um, Golden Brown by the Stranglers is the only other one I can actually think of. Yeah, d- difficult tune, but really rather nice and um, uh, melodic and, and, and decent harmonies. I'm really sorry to say I have no idea who wrote it. Do you have that information? A guy called Stanley Lucas. Stanley <laughs> Lucas. I must look him up. <laughs> yeah. <I'll... laughs> I think he was a staff songwriter. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Well, good work, Stan. (laughs) Good song. Right in the same session, there was um, was it Brian's track uh, "Polar Bear," which is kind of a you know a, more of a gentle gentle track. Yeah, yeah, "Polar Bear" is a strange one, isn't it? Mm. That obviously is entirely Brian. I, I I didn't have any any part in the writing of that. 
I thought it was a strange song. I, I, it was very, very gentle. But I'm glad to see that it's very popular with the fans. Yeah. In fact, people have been asking me if I'll do a version of it. Well, I don't feel as though I ought to, really, but hmm. yeah. In this period as well, uh, Freddie Mercury was kind of on the scene. I think he had a, a band in this period of his own. And But I've read that you were kind of a friend of friend of his. Were you at college? Yeah, we were at Ealing School of Art together. We were both doing graphics. Freddie wasn't as... Well, well, when you say... I mean, he's a flamboyant character on stage, but a really shy, gentle person off stage. He was pretty shy and gentle and and amusing at college mm. and we got on very well i mean he was funny you know i i've always um, i've always been drawn to people with a great sense of humor fred had a great sense of humor i mean he was gently gently cynical gently sarcastic gently sardonic mm. i mean just almost exactly the same kind of humor that i have and i mean it was a the social circle that we all were part of was very closely predicated on the music scene. So it was kind of almost really obvious that he would join a band or form a band or, or work as a session singer. And the very fact that when I left, he joined, it's of no surprise to me at all. It wasn't at the time. I mean, I, I kind of did see it happening. I, I mean, I didn't instigate it, but I left because I genuinely felt that for me the the heavy rock idiom was had limited mm. limited interest for me really at the time i was beginning to evolve away from it mm. i had nothing against it it's just that i was i was kind of looking elsewhere i kind of looking really looking to to america in more more than to england for my inspiration i, I was I was intrigued with certain things that were happening in the States at that time. Mm. And in fact, a, a year later, I I went to the States and spent four months there, which really did, was a real seminal moment for me um, in, in terms of my musical direction. I've, I've read that you kind of shared a flat with um, Brian and Roger. And... No, Is that true? No, that's completely untrue. I never shared a flat with any of them. I lived at home all of that time. And the only time I, I actually, I, moved, I didn't move out of my parents' house until about 73, although I was, I was frequently part-time guest on other people's sofas okay. on other people's floors. <laughs> but uh, I, did, I, I never shared a flat with, with any of them, no.
Obviously, you talked about it was the American sound that kind of really kind of inspired you in that that period. And obviously, when you look at kind of Smile and where they were, and you know people like uh, songwriter Jonathan Kelly at the time, it, it yes. did appear to be a bit of a no brainer in terms of joining. Um, was it was was Humpy Bong a band at the time, or did it kind of evolve? Well, it was. Uh, I tell you what happened. I mean, it, it was a. Hmm. Humpy Bong would have been a full band, but it existed as a loose collection of session men with Jonathan and I as the only permanent, oh, and Colin Peterson, uh, who who started the whole thing. Was he the Bee Gees? He was the original Bee Gees drummer. Yeah. We three were the only permanent members, and the plan was to record... And then to get out on the road and and maybe generate the band together like that, but it it kind of wasn't working. We did Top of the Pops a couple of times. I did a session for Jonathan on top, played guitar for Jonathan on Top of the Pops. Um, Jonathan had a healthy career as a folk singer, and he was making his own albums. And I think what actually happened was that during the time that Humpy Bong was in its inception. Jonathan's career was also kind of taking off. I mean, he had two very well, very good selling albums. Um, what was the first one? Um, Twice Round the Houses, was it? I'm not entirely sure which order his albums came in, but he, he, he did have a couple of pretty well selling albums. And he could he could sell out a gig, a concert. And, it, and because Colin Peterson was Jonathan's manager, what, in his independent role as well as in his role as part of Humpy Ball, um, I guess he he thought, well, there's no point in interfering with Jonathan's career while it's going so well. So Humpy Ball kind of got a back seat, really. And and after a while, I didn't really... I left and joined Morgan. Oh, yeah, which we'll be touching on later. So the single that Humpy Bong released yeah. is uh, Don't You Be Too Long, and obviously it did... Was it a, a chart hit as well? I think it was low. I think it was a low hit. Low 50s, probably. I can't see it getting much higher than that. And, of course, the other thing is that John had al- already done a, a version of it on his own album. We treated it... It was quite fast, the way I sang it. I, I mean, I'm quite 
it's quite good. I think the vocal is still quite good. I didn't realise until when I, uh, once I'd heard it back that I did have rather a high voice in those days. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it works well. Um, it's got that kind of, um, it does have a bit more of that American country rock sound. Definitely, definitely. Well, uh, that was the, the Kelly influence. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a very influential figure in my musical uh, upbringing as well. Mm. I was introduced to a whole different era and a whole different area of focus, musical focus. And that coupled with my trip to the States, it's really had, had a serious effect. At almost exactly that time, 1970, the first Ry Cuda album was released. We all listened to that and thought, my God, what's this? Oh, yeah. That was like dropping an atom bomb into our musical sensibilities. Very, very influential album indeed. It's interesting in the first, say, four years of their existence, still touched base with some of the material that that you were doing in the, the, the smile period at times. Obviously, we've talked about doing all right. We were kind of aware that the band were recording or demoing some of the, the smile material, especially for, you know, in the period of the first couple of Queen albums. 
I actually didn't know that until later on, until a few years afterwards. I mean, the because they they recorded a demo, they demoed Silver Salmon, which had been another song of mine, which I hadn't even finished. Uh, and and there it was. I heard a version of it in later years, and and I, I mean that was the biggest surprise of all to me. Uh, the, the, the thing I always thought about doing all right, which is probably a bit disingenuous, to be honest with you, is that I, I sort of thought to myself, well, maybe when they were coming up to their first album, they didn't have enough original material and they had to default mm. to one of the Smile songs just to pad the album out. I actually don't think that's the case now because they did such a good version of it and such a considered version of it that it couldn't have been a filler. But the other song, which actually you you mentioned in the in the um, in the schedule that you sent me, was "See What a Fool I've Been." But that's a song that 1984 did, not Smile at all, except that Freddie made it his own. I I didn't hear that till years afterwards. Freddie really extemporised on that one because it's an old, it's a Sunny Terry Brownie McGee tune, and in fact. The title, I don't think the title is even actually the, the original song, but uh, Freddie's uh, version of it was um, was quite extraordinary. I'm unclear about this, so I'd certainly welcome welcome your view. It said that White Queen, as it as it began, uh, originates from the Smile era, but I'm I'm kind of unclear about whether that's that's true or false. Uh, I don't think it was anything. To, it may have originated with uh, in Freddie's mind. It certainly didn't. Uh, impinge on mine. It was not part of our canon. It was not part of our activity. Mm. Okay, well, let's uh, listen to Queen, uh, see what a fool I've been, which I recall is the B-side to Seven Seas of Rye. Coming on strong 
So now we go to uh, Morgan, as, as you mentioned earlier, Tim. Was that Morgan Fisher, Fisher's band? Yeah, Morgan Fisher and Morris Bacon and, and, and Bob Satsett, who was the bass player, had been the rhythm section of The Love Affair, the last incarnation of the original Love Affair. I guess they were jointly a little tired of playing kind of overtly pop repertoire. And Morgan had been writing this esoteric, neoclassical stuff for some time yeah i can't even remember how i joined i must have gone for an audition but what intrigued me about it was that the the chance was for me to become the librettist most of the music was written and he would send me the music across and i would just write the lyrics and i've never done anything quite like that before whenever i'd written before i'd always been partially involved or completely involved in the melodic content as well but this time i was being given the the whole of the melodic structure and asked to write lyrics to it i was intrigued and i wanted to do it even though it flew in the face of what i've just been saying about wanting to work in a more of an american style because morgan was absolutely out and out british prog rock it didn't have hardly any of that that american rhythmic swing that i'd associated with that kind of stuff but it was still a great time and i'm i'm proud of those morgan albums and in fact i think towards the end we did allow ourselves to to absorb some of the american flavors yeah uh, if you listen to Brownout and if you listen to The Sleep Awakes, to give it its latter-day title, the big track What Is Is What, uh, there's plenty of rhythmic 
um, not so much country, uh, I guess more, more almost sort of funky blues uh, rhythms on that. And so maybe that was my influence. I don't know. It was certainly a very eclectic mix of, of things. Uh, and I'm very proud of The Sleeper Waits. I think it's a cracking album. The album that came out as Brownout, it came out a few years after it was originally recorded. Was that, was that something that contributed to the band kind of dissipating? Yeah, well, you see, what happened was we had a contract for um, we had a contract for two albums, uh, and uh, we were contracted to RCA in Rome. So uh, we we were we were in Rome recording both of those albums. The first album, which was Nova Solis, was greeted with interest and and a positive approach from the record company. And then a little later that year, we. We, we toured, we toured Italy, and then we came to do the second album, which would have been the final, the final album in our contract, and it became very apparent that the record company didn't really know how to market prog rock, because Nova Solis wasn't really doing anything, um, and uh, wh- wherever it was popular, I just don't think it was particularly popular in Italy. So we kind of got the sense that they were losing interest, so we became uncooperative ourselves, so much so that I think we upset the record company. And once we finished Brownout, the, our contract ended, and to our disgust, they didn't release the album. And it wasn't until maybe a couple of decades later that Cherry Red Records got hold of it and actually put it out. And then later on, Angel Air re-released it, and we, we retitled it uh, The Sleeper Wakes which I thought was particularly appropriate. And, uh, and it was very lucky there happened to be a track on it called The Sleeper Wakes.
What happened to the man I used to be? We passed the wall, we heard the gate, but as I came, the hour was late, and as we crossed, I recognized the Did you appear on much else in the in the seventies? I did see a passing um, reference to you. Yeah, I, I did sessions. I mean, I did I did sessions with. I still did sessions with Jonathan, and then I, obviously after I'd left Morgan, I I, I I joined up with Jonathan Kelly's Outside, which was his electric band, because by that time he'd left folk overtly folk music behind, and he formed an absolutely cracking band. Uh, and I was very fortunate enough to be included in it. I also, we, we, we were very good friends with Kieran White, who was who had been the lead singer of Steamhammer in the 60s. And he was uh, working as a solo artist. I did some work on his album, which was called uh, Open Door. I did a lot of session singing, backing vocals and, and percussion and stuff. But Jonathan's band was was a joy 
to work with because it included Jazz Jankel from Blockheads, Snowy White, Kuma Harada, Peter Woods, keyboard player, Trevor Williams from um, Nashville Teens was in it briefly. It was a great band, a really great band, very much in the style of contemporaries like the average white band and uh, Kokomo, uh, because we were doing, we were mainly doing funk. We were mainly doing, well, Jonathan's songs, obviously. It was basically a funk band, and by golly, it was a good one. Hmm. <laughs> Is it about the late 70s you, that your work in the industry lessened and, and you've had a you know, very successful career as a, a model maker? Yeah, it was pretty obvious that, that I wasn't... I was, I'd been living with my wife since 1973, and it was pretty obvious that I wasn't earning enough money to make ends meet. And I think she was supporting me and and, and growing fairly disgruntled at the, at the prospect of always supporting me. So I, I, I ended up abandoning music, at least as a full-time occupation. Because I'd done graphics at college, I decided to... Uh, I, well, I didn't decide anything, really. I just thought, well, what I'd really like to get into was tv special effects yeah. and uh, actually i managed to get a job in a local prop house in putney and uh, and and, the, and that was my then my my next career move for the next 30 years and uh, as you probably know for the I, I became the i was the chief model maker on the first series of tommy the tank engine yeah. but i also worked on dozens of british commercials feature films in the model making and special effects department, with a, a leaning towards animation, uh, I, I ended up after that. I directed commercials for a couple of production companies before I finally formed my own company and just started to work in the, in the um, in the industry um, as a manager rather than a maker. And I that lasted until the millennium, upon which I. I closed the company down and went back to music. Great that you were still able to kind of um, still have that more artistic side to you know your your your, your career after after your time in, in the industry in, in in the seventies. It was a bit of a relief because it's when I left music, my self esteem took a tumble. I needed a kind of creative resurgence mm. to cheer myself up. <laughs> Uh, it's a tough be, industry, isn't it? Yeah, because obviously, I mean, at that particular time, uh, you know, Queen were successful, and uh, and like I say, I, like I've said elsewhere, I wasn't so much jealous, but I was pretty envious of it, you know. And I, and and, I, and it, one does feel that one has failed, really, because you, your your initial attempts to to achieve something in that along those lines hadn't worked. And my ex-colleagues had taken it to dizzying heights, so I, I, I did need a, I did need a boost. Mm. And I think, by and large, my career in in film and TV it, it gave me that boost, if not the financial rewards. So, so kind of looking on, a, I guess, kind of, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you couldn't couldn't miss Queen, really, could you? They're kind of everywhere. It's kind of a bit of a sort of shadow. shadow. It's kind of something that's there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, they, they kind of were or are. Mm. It doesn't matter. Even if you don't like Queen, and, uh, and I assume there are people that don't, 
but you can't one cannot escape the fact that that nothing that they've done has been anything other than deeply professional finely crafted serious mm. with bags of creative integrity uh, and uh, i mean what else can you ask for with an from an artist you know that, that, that there's no part of their career that has been haphazard or slapdash or mm. without professional focus one, one interesting aspect is that brian and roger haven't forgotten yeah. there was a bit of a sort of smile type reunion in in the early 90s oh yeah 92 that was fun yeah that was great i mean yeah. i mean it was still overshadowed by the loss of freddie i'm afraid of course but uh yeah that was a lot of fun we, we did a, a couple of nights at the marquee for the cross christmas party <laughs> i thought i thought my uh I thought my chance had come. But it was great, you know, it was really good. Uh, I, on the first night, I drank too much, I'm afraid. Everybody has obviously been far too good-mannered to ever mention that. <laughs> the second night was better because I was sober. <laughs> yeah, that was good fun, great fun, though. And and you're right, you know, Brian and Roger have, in fact, sometimes I hardly did, I, I'm not even sure I, I understand why, but I've always had a name check right from the very beginning. And I used to think, well, hang, hang on a minute, there must, be, there must be hundreds of bands who had the singer before the final singer. And, um, you know, why do, why do I deserve th- this? Th- th- I mean, uh, okay, people do say that, that the roots of Queen exist in Smile, and, and maybe that's true. Um, but I still felt slightly, slightly bogus, slightly as if I didn't deserve it. Um, nice of them to do it, but do I really deserve it, boys? The, the music stands on its own, and you know, including Doing All Right, which is yeah. you know a song that they've, they keep on revisiting. Yeah, they do, and, and I'm amazed that so many people are... Well, since this happened... Since this this the movie happened, it's encouraged me to make use more use of Instagram and Facebook. The messages of of uh, mm. the goodwill that I've been on the receiving end of from fans and people has been, uh, frankly, overwhelming, uh, completely overwhelming. So, I mean, in fact, it's helped me to understand that that mm. my role in it is is more legitimate than 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 I might otherwise uh, think yeah. um because the fans believe in it you know so so I believe in it we're kind of getting to that point where we want to talk about some of your solo material and uh, because you were talking about kind of closing down your business kind of at the turn of the millennium was that was that then the the period that you kind of really started to get back into sure. into music yeah it's not that I wasn't playing in those intermediate years because because it, i mean and just to briefly go back to the 70s because it mm. is significant in the late 70s i met uh, richard lightman right. he's a canadian guitar player graduate of berkeley school of music and we had a band called tail feather ah yeah there was a single yeah there is a single and in fact i'm i'm actually sitting on five tracks here that, which I probably will make available for download at some point. Uh, they're, they're very good quality, and they contain a couple of the songs that turned up on the Amigo album 
decades later. So Tailfeather, it, it wasn't a work, it was a recording band, and we did some covers, but the reason I mention it is because Richard Lightman is my collaborator on the two most recent albums that I've done. The first one is Amigo, which right. was the result of having closed my company down on the Millennium, or rather 2001, I went back to freelancing as a as an artist, as a sculptor, yeah. as a model maker. But I then began to look around for musical projects as well. And of course, at that point, my son, Andrew, who had followed my musical journey closely and in fact had latched onto it in exactly the same way that I had. And his, his tastes are indistinguishable from mine which is why he ended up as my drummer. I won't make any albums without Andrew as my drummer, because not only does he play drums magnificently, he also has a, a view of what I do, an objective view of it, which is absolutely invaluable. Yeah. Everybody should have a mentor like that. <laughs> I've picked the, the track Stray from Amigo. Who, who's playing on that? Because you do have quite... Um... You, you, you have brought in some some of the uh, musicians uh, that that you played with in the in the past on that record as well. Well, that's true. Well, interestingly, "Stray" is one of the tracks that was there on the original Tail Feather tapes. Ah, right. Yeah. Oh, I was playing the guitar on that, but the whole band for the Migo band was was myself on guitar, Richard Lightman on bass and guitar, Andrew. Staffel on drums, Peter Hammond on keyboards, John Webster on guitar. Um, it was pretty much the same band all the way through, but with the addition of, for instance, Snowy on Just Couldn't Say and and Love of the People. Brian obviously was on Earth and doing all right. Pete Hammond was on everything. Dave O'Higgins was on Why Can't We Be Free, Country Life. Chris Smith, who had briefly been in Smile back in the day, mm. uh, played some piano on Sudden Moves, and Morgan dubbed some piano on Earth from Tokyo, where he lives. Get out of the 
a few tracks uh, to, to close from your, your latest album Too Late so I was, I was about to um, uh, kind of ask you about Ill Wind was that that kind of more had an element of political stroke environmental commentary on it well I suppose so um, it's very general isn't it I mean I tend to have a bit of a I'm not overtly political but socially I have a general view which is probably a little bit left-leaning. Mm. If I write, I... Well, well, actually, I, I should stop there because I used to write with generalised lyrics about social pitfalls, and I suppose that's what I'd describe Ill Wind as, just a, a sort of parable, really, a, a generalised parable about how screwed up the world is. Um, and you know, and, and who not to listen to, and 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 etc. Mm. But in latter days, I've started to write more personal tunes. I was never one for relationship songs, to be honest. I, I get rather tired of listening to oversimplified lyrics about people's personal relationships. That I don't mean the kind of anthemic stuff that. I mean, for instance, one of my favourite songs of all time has got to be uh, Somebody to Love, you know, mm. which is a generalised relationship song. But I mean, that's not that's not what I mean. But I, I, what, what I really mean is that with so many factory pop tunes, the lyrics are just drawn from, from generalised personal relationship vibes and they really have very little interest for me. I've always done things that I felt had some significance and might make people just reflect on what they were about. And the land, for instance, on the Amigo album, that's perhaps a bit a bit more overt. But it's a poem. It's more poetic. And I ought to actually say at that point that one my co writer on that was Rob Tolchard, who had been in the school band The Others, the competitive school band The Others, back in the days of Hampton. So, you know, there's a connection there.
this lady's gone then therefore kind of that was the big that was yeah. the beginning of my my changeover if you like i have a third album which i want to start work on in the new year and that is very largely composed of much more personal tunes personal lyrics uh, and ladies gone was the beginnings of me moving into that area and actually it's one of my favorites too let's hope it's not too maudlin
So to close, I want to uh, close all the gates <laughs> and play Close All the Gates from, from Too Late. What are your reflections on, on this song? Well, I'm not sure. The, the funny thing about writing is that, well, for me, I, I mean, for me, the, the strange thing is that, that some songs are born from tension and from, from struggle. I don't mean that in a metaphysical sense. I mean, some songs are difficult to difficult to get out you know you 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 work at them you refine the lyrics you um you ponder over the meaning of verses you ponder over phrases and then you finally accept that the finished song is the finished song some songs are like that other songs come tumbling out in a very short space of time and close all the gates came tumbling out uh, and I don't really know where it came from. The only thing that did give me trouble was the guitar pattern. The guitar pattern was not easy to achieve, but uh, but the lyrics just and the and the structure just came tumbling out like a waterfall. Extraordinary, very strange. <laughs> and so you know, looking looking forward, um, we've talked about doing all right, vis- revisited on the Bohemian Rhapsody soundtrack. Your profile and role in the Queen story because of the film is, mm-hmm. you know, exponentially um, more well known these days. And, and I think you mentioned earlier you're kind of working on a, a third solo album. Yes, I am. I had a an odd little occurrence in the summer. I'm doing a small tour of France, and, a, and one of my closest friends died a year ago. And in the middle of the tour in France, I discovered that her funeral would be on one day in the middle of the tour. It was the one day we didn't have a gig. So I flew back from Toulouse, back into London, and I went to her funeral, and the next morning I flew back out to Toulouse again. It was quite a, um, it was a, quite a surreal experience, to be honest. All the time I kept thinking, right. there's no margin for error. If, if I... If I miss the flight, if I miss the train, if I miss, you know, there's absolutely no margin for error in this this little um, endeavour. And so I decided that that would be the provisional title of the third album. It's No Margin. Brilliant. Mm. So you heard it here first, folks. Mm. And uh, I've got 10 songs ready to go with that. Uh, uh, Like I said, most of them are more personal. There are one or two slightly whimsical um, offerings but they do concern age and relationships and emotions and anxieties probably more so than anything I've done in the past. You've got a website that has handy links to all the social media and, and your music? Yes it's a what I'd call a utility website. It's a pretty stripped down but one tends to think that Actually, Instagram and Facebook are more important these days than than personal websites. At least that's my feeling. With Facebook, certainly you do get a much, uh, and, and Instagram, you, you, you get feedback. You, you and you just don't really get that kind of feedback from a personalised website. I haven't yet made any forays into Twitter. I'm advised to, but I'm not sure. I'm just not sure about it. 
Tim, thank you so much. It's been a privilege hearing your story and how it's woven into the Queen's story and it's such a prominent topic at, at, at this point in time with, with the film out. And, um, you know, I, I look forward to sharing your story. Well, it's a massive pleasure for me. I'm, and I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. Uh, I really do. Uh, I'm still bemused by the idea that, that I'm still part of the story. Uh, of course, immensely flattered. Thank you again. Pleasure. Let's uh, let's close all the gates. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jason. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Now.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.